Okay, friends, 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 welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Today is Sunday, February 7th, 2021. We are exploring and studying this book called Overcoming Folly, which is an incredible book of Kabbalah. This series, Overcoming Folly, is sponsored by Ed Zinn in honor of, in loving memory of his dear mother, Arden Zinn. And may her memory be indeed for a blessing and bring blessing down for the mishpacha and for all of us. Okay, so today we're speaking about, the topic of today is truth, lies, and stories. And it's interesting because I was thinking about modifying the title in my email. If you got it last night, then you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't get it, if you're not on the email list, let me know. I'll get you on it. Um, oh, Alex, Welcome. Alex, welcome, and Joy, welcome. I don't know if I welcomed you as you guys came in. <coughs> okay, so Truth, Lies, and Stories. And I was thinking about changing the title to Truth, Lies, and Storytelling, but it's really more about stories, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. So when it comes to lies and dishonesty, so as truthful as we all think that we are, you know, listen, we're not doing Sunday morning confession. However, however, I will say that as truthful as you and I believe that we are, the reality is that there's still room for improvement. And as truthful as we try to be, we, can't, we almost cannot help avoid, we almost can't avoid or can't help ourselves from saying things that are not 100% truthful. So when we were kids, right? When we were kids, I remember it was a thing in our community, in our Chabad community growing up in Pittsburgh amongst the kids, to brag about how long our Passover seders went on the night of Passover. Anybody familiar with this concept, with this uh, thing? Anyway, it was specific to our community or to some communities. It was kind of like, you know, the morning up, so that you have the Seder the first night, and then the next morning, you know, everyone's in synagogue. So it's like, oh, how late did your Seder go? Oh, my Seder went to like 2 a.m., and you were up the whole time, like as little kids. Yeah, I was up the whole time. Oh, that's nothing. My Seder went to like 2.30, wow, like a.m., right? Oh, my gosh. And anyway, the, it was like all about bragging about how late your Seder went. And, you know, did, did it really go to 2? Did it really go to 2.30? Did you even really know the concept of time that well? Was anybody paying attention? I was <laughs> Reva was. But, like, right, you were totally up till 2.30, right? But that's my point. Mommy, right? Yeah. Oh, one sec. Remember, remember um, I woke up, like, middle, kind of at the night, told you? Mm-hmm. Yes, you woke up and you stayed up to the whole, the whole night. Right, so look, and it's part of it is, you know, is not, not knowing and whatever, but part of it is, and it's not coming from a bad place, but there is an element, there's an element of exaggeration in life, even as kids coming from a precocious, innocent place, but that does touch on the element of not 100% honesty. That is just the nature of the human being, and as we get older, as we get older, the dishonesty kind of grows. And again, I'm not talking about malicious dishonesty yet. We'll get there. But it's kind of like, you know, we kind of miss around the corners a little bit. 
you know, if there are sharp edges. We got around the corners. It's like, you know, I'll be there in five minutes when the GPS says 10, <laughs> hard 10 minutes. There's no way that five minutes is going to happen. Or it's any other sort of thing that we kind of like, you know, modify a drop to kind of make things sound a little bit smoother, but we know that it's not 100% being truthful, but we do it because, I don't know, because we're human and because that's how we roll and we're not so 100% honest. And again, this is not meant to be a pointed criticism or an attack against the human condition. It's more of an honest and frank conversation about the nature of, of our lives. And that is, to summarize, as truthful as we try to be and as honest as we try to be, the reality is that a lot of our lives, a lot of our conversations are at least sprinkled with, right? Sprinkled with um, dishonest dust, Elements of dishonesty, right? You try, you try to go through life always saying the truth. It's, 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 uh, it's likely not going to happen. And by the way, this is not even getting into the idea, the notion that sometimes we're meant to hide the truth a little bit. This is another topic that's going to, I feel like it's going to pull me a little off topic, but I feel drawn by the full picture to disclose this. Judaism teaches that there is a value that in certain situations overrides the value of truth, and that is peace, shalom. So to, to preserve and to uphold the value of peace, we are permitted and sometimes obligated, not necessarily to lie outright, but to perhaps, I don't know, this is going to sound like another form of lying, modify the truth or maybe withhold an element of truth or not bear the entire truth to preserve peace. The biblical source of this is none other than God himself. Now, I know what you're thinking. Did you just call God? Yeah, no, but here's the thing. God models this idea of withholding, modifying, sugarcoating truth in order to preserve peace, and I'll give you the context. So Abraham and Sarah are advanced in age. They're in their 90s. And God promises, God tells, God sends angels to Abraham, if you recall, shortly after his Brit Milah, his circumcision, at the ripe old age of 99. And God, one of the angels essentially tells, um, tells Abraham that he's going to have a child. And this message also reached the ears of Sarah, that Abraham and Sarah were going to have children. So Sarah laughs. The Torah says she laughed inwardly, and she remarked again inwardly. She said, how in the world are we going to have kids? My husband is so old. Like, how is that going to happen? Right? 99 years old, how are we going to have kids? That's what Sarah says. God goes to Abraham, because God can know what's going on, right? Today, the government knows what's going on, right? Back then, it was God. Don't worry, it's still today. God knows what's going on. Um, 
Speaking of which, I just heard, I don't know if you guys are following this, Baltimore just suspended its surveillance planes after four years. Anyway, if you don't know what that is, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, um, piece of technology and surveillance that was going on, which again, the idea of people watching, literally that was going on for a number of years. Moving back to our conversation. So God hears, God knows what Sarah is, is, is thinking. So God goes to Abraham to try to bolster the faith. And he says, you know, why is Sarah laughing, saying that she's too old to have children? I want you to believe that indeed you guys will have children. You see what just happened? God says to Abraham, why is Sarah skeptical, saying that how could she have a child at such an age? Don't worry, I can deliver on the promise. Again, Sarah was skeptical about her husband's age. But when God speaks to Abraham, God says that she was concerned about having a child at her age, not wanting to drive a wedge between the couple. Are you with me in the, in the example? Does the, exam, does the story make sense? Again, I'm going to say the story one more time. God sends an angel to promise Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a child. Sarah's reaction is, there's no way my husband's too old. God says to the husband, to Abraham, Sarah is skeptical about her age, saying that she's too old, but don't worry, I got this, you're going to have a child. God does not tell Abraham that Sarah thought that he was too old because that would create friction between husband and wife. Abraham would say, Sarah, you think I'm so old? You think I can't have children? So to avoid that, God just takes one for the team and says, Sarah was talking about herself that she was too old, even though that's not exactly what she said. This becomes the source, as the Talmud says, as our sages teach us, that when it comes to preserving peace, one is allowed to massage the truth a drop. So, as a concession to the realities of peace, sometimes, sometimes, we have to work with the truth to make it also in a peaceful and sustainable way. But the overarching point, the bigger point here is that we live in a world in which it's almost impossible. I'm just going to say impossible. I, I mean, I mean impossible. I'm going to just say almost to make it sound like more, I'm being more uh, tentative about it, but I'm really not inside. But just so you know, that's me being truthful. So the reality is that it's impossible or almost impossible to walk through this life being 100% truthful. It's not possible, and we don't do it, and you and I know that, and if we tell ourselves that we've always said the truth 100% of the time, and we've never told, said anything that was a little bit short of the truth, I would say, boom, there you go. That's the first <laughs> mistruth that we've told ourselves today, perhaps, right? It's, it's impossible to go through life with 100% truth. And the reason for this, the Kabbalists tell us, is, the reason for this, according to Kabbalah, is because the very foundation... The very platform of our reality is a lie. Yes, you heard me say it correctly. The very foundation, the very platform, the very basis of our reality is a big, huge lie. So let me explain. What is our reality? What is our plane of existence? Well, our reality is predicated on a sense of self and a sense of ego and a sense of I am and I exist and I am my own person. 
and I am a self-created person, right? The very platform of our existence is self-awareness, self-consciousness. I don't mean that in a negative way, just in a, you know, knowing self and a lack of sense of source. Yeah, we can learn about source and we can think about it, we can meditate, we can discover it, but the natural default awareness is that of self. Stated very simply, we sense ourselves and we don't sense God. That is the first lie. That's not a lie that we conjure up. That's a lie that's embedded in the fabric of creation. In other words, what I'm saying this morning is that the word that you know, I think most of you know, if not all of you know by now, which is tzimtzum, is the first lie that we're told. Tzimtzum is the lie that founds and, and sustains our reality. Because if all of the facades were removed, if all of the obfuscations were removed, if all of the screens and curtains, curtains were removed, and we would see the truth, we could not exist as we exist right now. We would not exist as we exist now. We would be dissolved in the pure source, light, that we would behold and be aware of. If we saw, this is stated clearly in Kabbalah, in Tanya, if the human eye saw the truth of reality, if you want an analogy, think matrix, right? If you and I saw the truth of reality, you and I could not exist as we exist with our current state of self-awareness, self-identification, and a discrete sense of I am, I, I am. We would not exist on that level. We would dissolve into source, whatever that means. The fact that you and I fundamentally are aware of self and identify as self and not God, not source, even if we're aware or think about or believe in source, we don't identify as source, we identify as self, that's the first lie. Because as Kabbalah teaches, as you and I know by now, everything is God, including the Tzimtzum. God is not absent anywhere, even in the space that he gives us. The space itself is nothing other than God, right? The Tzimtzum is, the light is God, the infinite light is God, the Tzimtzum is God, right? The Kav, the limited light that comes after the Tzimtzum is God. It's all God. We are nothing but a projection of divine energy, but we are created in a way that the tzimtzum, the tzimtzum, which is the contraction, the, the, the big concealment of the light, does not actually take God away or remove God. It just removes God from our awareness, which again is the first big lie. The first big lie of this world is, oh, God's not around, you're around. <laughs> or don't worry about God. You exist. You and I exist. We are real. God, maybe, but we are real. So the higher, let me just check in for a second. Does, does what I'm saying make sense? Yes? Yes-ish or yes? Thumbs up if yes. Thumbs sideways if ish. Okay, I'm getting some thumbs up. By the way, I'm not, this is not like a hot take. This is not like, you know, a th this is straight up, I'm just, this is nothing that you and I have not studied over the last, I don't know, however long we've been studying together. It's all the same ideas, 
but I'm just using another uh, addition, just new wording, perhaps, that I've never used before. And that is the idea of deception, right? Deception. Essentially, that symptom is deception. That symptom is God deceiving us into believing that we are self-existing autonomous creatures. That's a lie. That's not true. That's not true. We are nothing but a projection of God and divine energy, and that never changes. Kabbalah says, the greatest trick, the greatest magic trick of all time, is how beings that, co- that continue to exist within God believe themselves to exist outside of God. That's the greatest magic trick ever performed. How beings that exist continuously within God, inside of God, somehow believe that they, we, exist outside. That's the great trick. That's what Tzimtzum is. That's the magic of Tzimtzum. The magic of Tzimtzum is allowing us, human beings, creatures, to believe that we are somehow autonomous. We are outside. And I know what you might be thinking. Maybe you weren't thinking this, but now I'm going to plant a question that I won't be able to answer, by the way. It's a good question. I can't answer the question because it's too mysterious to answer. You're you're never going to find an answer to this question. So, based on what Kabbalah teaches, Nu, is free choice real or not? Is it real, objectively, or is it part of the deception, part of what we believe because we believe we're autonomous beings? Is it objective truth or is it subjective not fantasy, but our perception. Do we think we're pulling the strings when we're still inside God who's pulling the strings? Or do we really have strings? And if that's true, doesn't that mean that we are outside some level, God, because God is not pulling those strings if we're pulling the strings? So which one is it? I'm not going to answer the question because it's impossible to answer the question when you go into Kabbalah. You can answer the question of free choice on many lower levels, that make perfect sense. And we've done that in other courses, in other classes, in other contexts. And you, many of you have asked me about free choice and I've given you answers. But I've always, not always, maybe once or twice I've leaked this piece of it. But there's always an angle that will never, there's, there's an angle that will never be resolved. Based on this deepest teaching of Kabbalah. That we constantly exist within God. That we are not truly outside of God. So what does that say about free choice? Moving on, moving on. There is a, you should know, there is a talk, a sicha of the Rebbe. I'm looking at it right now on my bookshelf. Whoosh. Oh, you can see some cereal on the table. <laughs> but there is a bookshelf past there. So one of those volumes, Likute Sichos, collection of the Rebbe's talks, volume number five. Looking at it right now. It is one of the deepest Kabbalistic philosophical treatments of free choice. I have studied it. I cannot tell you how many times. I have asked experts, like mentors. I don't know. There's a bit of a mystery over there. And today we're not going to resolve it. And um, I don't know that it's ever going to really be resolved. But it is what it is. Getting back to the point, because the class is not about free choice. It's about deception. Here's the thing. You and I find it so hard to be 
honest all the time. And, and I said before, we're not always meant to be 100% honest because truth is a value equal, equal to honesty and sometimes truth, sorry, peace is a value that's equal to truth and sometimes peace is more important than truth. Champagne is peace at the home, etc. Fine. But even when we're trying to be truthful, it's so hard and there's so much deception, whether it's an um, innocent deception or malicious deception. You know, I gave you examples of kids kind of exaggerating. Um, but as, a, as adults, we also exaggerate. But then sometimes we try to deceive. We intend to deceive, right? We misrepresent ourselves. We misrepresent others. Others misrepresent themselves to us. Deception is so rife. Deception is so... It's so... And I'm not even talking about certain areas in which we know to expect deception, right? You know, think of certain areas in, in, in the world in which, yeah, obviously there's deception because that's how, that's how that works. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about a normal everyday activity. There is so much deception, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we intend or not, whether it's malicious or, or innocent, deception is everywhere. But th what I'm trying to explain this morning is that according to Kabbalah, there's a reason for this. And that is because the very foundation of our autonomous existence is deception. Because we're not autonomous. We, the cord was never cut. If we feel that the cord was cut, yeah, that's the first big lie. But it's by design, by the way. This is not like us deceiving ourselves. I, I, I hesitate somewhat to use the language. This is... All right. Sorry. This is God deceiving us on purpose, right? This is not like you know, a negative thing, but it's God intentionally. Yeah, this is, oh, hey, I'll, I'll, well, hold on one second. Wait, wait, hold on. You can't just drop by, swing by without saying hi. Yeah, you can, but say hi. All right, it's fine. And you're saying hi in spirit. There you go. Okay, so here's the thing. Hey, Reeves, have a good one. Um, look, it's God is deceiving us. Now it's for a purpose. It's for a reason. Tsimtsum is a deception. Our thought, belief, awareness that we exist is the first big lie. And from that lie, everything, everything moves from that, from that place. Everything progresses from that original OG lie. That's the way it works. So from the first deception, everything else builds. So God tells Adam in the Garden of Eden, uh, of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat. So what does Adam tell Eve? Right, God tells that to Adam. So what does Adam tell Eve? God told me not to eat, not to eat and don't even touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do you know about this? Are you familiar with this teaching, this medrash, that Adam modified the commandment? Hold on one second. Guys, close the door, please. Shia, close the door, please. Thanks. Okay, so basically, this is called Kabbalah and parenting. So, or whatever, Kabbalah and instructing. God tells Adam not to eat from the tree. Adam tells Eve not to eat nor to touch the tree, the serpent goes over to Eve and says, hey, what do you think about that tree? It looks great. You want to have a bite together? 
And she says, no, I can't eat it, nor can I touch it. And he's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, if I even touch it, we're all going to die. So the snake pushes her. You might say, how can a snake push someone? The snake was upright. How is the snake upright? It's another measure. Can't get into it right now. The snake at that point was upright. Its curse was that it should slither on its belly, but at that point it was upright. The snake pushes Eve into the tree. Guess what? She touches the tree. And guess what happens? What happens? Symbolize with your hands. What happened when she touched the tree? <laughs> or not. Or just tell me. I don't even have to symbolize with your hands. I don't even... Yes! Thank you, Alex. Nothing. I, that's what I was thinking. Right? Nothing happened. Why? Because there was no problem touching the tree. You can touch the tree. Right? No problem touching the tree. So the snake is like, see? The whole thing's a farce. You can touch the tree. You can eat the tree. I mean, eat from the tree. No problem. And then he offers her a bite, and she does, and then she gives it to Adam, and the rest is history, as they say. So where, do, according to this teaching, where does the whole problem stem from? It, stem from? it stems from Adam's deception. Adam modified God's word, the prohibition about eating the tree, and Adam modifies it and says, don't eat nor touch. Now, you and I could imagine why Adam would have wanted to do that, right? All he was doing is making a fence around the tree, right? Trying to, you know, like the sages make a fence around the Torah, right? Trying to say, don't even get close enough so that you might, you know, get to that point where you're doing something that you shouldn't. So Adam was like, you could understand his motivation. It was saying that, you know, I don't, we shouldn't eat from the tree and just to be careful, I'm even going to tell you not even to touch it, because if you're not touching the tree, then for sure you're not going to eat from the tree. But it backfired, spectacularly, because it was deception. What should he have done? Well, he should have, first of all, he should have been truthful and said, you know, don't eat from the tree, that's what God said. He could have said, I'm going to take upon myself a personal um, stringency to not even go near to touch the tree because I don't even want to get close and I think we should commit to do that and that might be an extra stringency which is by the way what the rabbis did when they put a fence around the Torah they never said that this is Torah they said this is the fence around the Torah and that's the only legitimate way to make a fence around the Torah is if the fence is transparent I mean you know what I mean by that right that you know what the fence is and what the actual law is because otherwise it leads to, to that. You got to know what the law is and what the fence is so that you know that this is, not, not that therefore you take the fence, you know, casually, but you know what, what is what. Adam misrepresented God's word. What I'm trying to say is simply, within the first few hours of creation, the first autonomous, thinking, rational human being forged and created the first deception. It took that quick. It was that quick to get into a place of deception. It took maybe two or three hours before the first lie was uttered. We can't help ourselves. And Adam meant well. He was not intending for harm. He was not intending for malice. He wasn't looking. That, it, wasn't, it did not come from a negative place. It came from a positive place. We exist in a world that is built on deception. The fabric of our reality 
is deception. Because if truth was revealed, it wouldn't look like this. You and I would not exist as autonomous beings. We wouldn't. We wouldn't. We would look like angels in heaven or souls in heaven. We would look like another one of the spiritual worlds. It wouldn't look like this reality. Self-identifying creatures going about our business. It wouldn't look like that. So it's hard to get away from deception. It's really hard to get away from deception. So there is a natural deception that's embedded in the fabric of creation. And I'm not criticizing it. I'm saying it's necessary for us to exist and function the way God wants us to function. And there are natural lies and deceptions that that are inevitable. But then there are the lies that are what we would call maybe icing on the cake. (laughs) Like the unnecessary ones that we layer on top of maybe the necessary ones. There are necessary ones to keep us alive, to keep us existing. But then there are the lies and deceptions that we scaffold, I'm using it as a verb, on top of the foundation. There are, there are the lies that we add on above and beyond what is perhaps necessary for the human condition. So that's what we've been talking about in this series, Overcoming Folly. You see, at its core, overcoming folly, at its core, The folly is really about the stories we tell ourselves. It's the stories of getting ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves to get ourselves in trouble or make ourselves feel okay with doing things that we know we shouldn't be doing. In other words, just to be a little bit more blunt than maybe I've been in the previous sessions, it's about the lies we tell ourselves. Overcoming folly, what is the folly? The folly is the lie. It's the lie. So, for example, last week, we spoke about uh, the Talmudic statement that here's how the Yetzirah works. You'll remember, if you, if you were here last week or if you listened to the, pot, to the recording, so you'll, this will be familiar. The Talmud says that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, which is, by the way, employed by God um, to provide you know, some, some contrast for good in our lives. So the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the way it works is it tells a person... Uh, one day it says do this, the next day it says do that, until ultimately it tells a person, go and worship idols. And in this context, worshiping idols is like the big, the big thing. The big, the big sin. Worshiping idols for you and I is like, well, uh, who wants to worship idols? Who's worshiping idols? Like, what does that even mean? But in the context of monotheism, worshiping idols is essentially like the biggest affront to monotheistic belief. It's, it's abandoning, it's turning one's back on God. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. So the Talmud says that we don't go to complete abandonment of our relationship with God in day one, in one you know, snap of the finger, one moment. It's a gradual process of today we do this, and the next day we do that, until eventually we're going in that direction. And last week I clarified that it's not only like day one, we look at the idol and idols are us. That's a shop of idols, by the way. We, it's not like one day one we're window sh- Oh, look at that. Um, yeah, but that's not for me. The next day we're, we spend more time in the window. And then the next day we walk into the store just browsing. The, the, can I help you with an idol? No, just browsing. And then you walk out. And then the next day you handle an idol. And then until eventually you're worshiping the idol. That's not what the Talmud means. The Talmud doesn't mean that idol worship happens in steps getting closer and closer to the actual idol worship. The way our discourse explained it is that Yitzhahara operates by getting us thinking about self more 
and less about God. And that's all it takes to lead us to straight-up idol worship. So today, the Eight Sahara tells us, indulge in you time. And I don't mean that you time is negative, but it's on some level, indulge in self. And then do more indulgence in self. And then think about you and think about yourself and think about what you need and think about what you want until eventually we become completely desensitized. You'll remember that word from last week. We become completely desensitized, not completely, but, but overwhelmingly desensitized to anything higher than our own wants and needs. And at that point, we are essentially serving another force other than God, which is idol worship. You see, we step away from that relationship incrementally, not necessarily by doing the thing that we're going to end up doing in small steps, but by doing our own thing and not thinking about God's thing. Does that make sense? Yeah? That's what we explained last week. So we turn away from God and just do our own thing. And it seems so innocent. It seems so legal. And it is. It's not, nothing wrong. Nothing immoral. Nothing, no transgression has happened. Right? No avera, no sin. But it's just focusing and indulging in self. Which, according to the way I want to frame it today, means indulging in the lie of separation. The notion that we are separate beings. The notion that we are separate from source, is the first great lie. And so indulging in the me and the I, which is the same, right? Indulging in number one, indulging in what I need, what I want. I'm not thinking about God. I have to take care of myself. Slowly but surely we forget about God altogether. That means indulging not just in self, in ego, but it means magnifying the deception. So here's what I didn't tell you before. God creates the lie so that we should discover the truth. And maybe you thought of that before. Maybe it was obvious, but I don't think I stated it clearly. God creates the lie not so that it should just be a lie, but so that we should realize Recognize the lie and discover the truth. Not necessarily to peel back all the curtains, because then we wouldn't exist, as I said before, but to at least know enough to know that, yeah, that's not true. That's a lie. To at least know enough to know that, yeah, we are really within God, even though we don't see it, can't change the perception, but I know enough to know that my perception is not the full truth. Does that make sense? That's what we're meant to do. But when we choose the opposite, when we choose to indulge in our separation, we choose to indulge in that separateness, essentially adding fuel to the original, to the fire of the original deception, that pulls us further and further and further away from truth. And being pulled further away from truth allows us one day to completely be alienated from that truth 
and frankly, to not even care what that truth is or what it says or what it means because we're stuck in such a separate state that we, it, we find it hard to, to climb back or to even want to. Like, what does that even mean? Which is what we said last week, that, we, that a person could become so desensitized toward God that even what God wants or doesn't want, it's irrelevant. Because the person is only asking, <coughs> excuse me, what is it that I want? What is it that I need? And if it's not alive, it's not the same, then, God, I got my own stuff to worry about. I'll worry about you some other time. It's a, it's a, desense, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a lack of sensitivity that comes from <coughs> self-indulgence, which again, today I'm saying is indulging in, in, the, um, in the deception. <coughs> Excuse me. So, today we're going to do a few things in, our, in the new text that we're going to study. Number one, we're going to highlight and crystallize the idea that with every step in the opposite direction, away from God, even small steps, it constitutes an act of separation. Now, part of the self-justification, part of the folly is that we tell ourselves, part of the deception is that we tell ourselves that we're not deceiving ourselves. Does that make sense? Right? Part of the deception is that we tell ourselves, no, this isn't a lie. Right? Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with this. We tell ourselves, oh, there's nothing wrong with me stepping away for a little bit. That doesn't constitute a breach in the relationship, or that's not adding more distance in the relationship. No, the relationship is fine. Right? My relationship with God is fine even as I do all these things that constitute small acts of abandonment, if you will. Like turning away, I'm like pivoting my body a drop just to symbolize like turning away from God a little bit. But no, that's not a big deal. We're still connected. Um, going back to our human example, human relationship example, which I, I've been using, I think the last two weeks I used this example. It's a very powerful example. Um, and it's really, in my opinion, the closest way that you and I can conceptualize, you know, these, these concepts. It's kind of like a person who's doing something that's not so sensitive to their loved one, whether it's a parent, a child, a spouse, a friend, doesn't matter. Someone who's turning, doing things to kind of turn away from that relationship and not be so sensitive to the other one who, who they love but tells themselves, doesn't say, well, I is not honest with themselves about what's happening. Because the honest thing would be, okay, I'm making a choice that is compromising the relationship, possibly hurting the other one, or at least putting some distance, some more space between me and the other. And the next thing they do is bring you more space and more space and more space. But instead of recognizing that, we tell ourselves, no, everything's fine as before. In other words, this is not creating more space. This is all part of, you know, we're fine. Until one day, perhaps, we realize, whoops, <laughs> it's not so fine. There's a lot of space. So again, it's kind of like what the Talmud says, how do we get to serving idols, which is being unfaithful or infidel. But again, it's not necessarily, it, it, this is not only a spousal relationship, this is any relationship. How do we come to that point where one day we wake up and there's a lot of space? It happens through little 
pivots, little moments of creating a little bit of space. And every time we did that, we told ourselves, this isn't a big deal. It's not creating any more space. It's not, it's not harming. It's all, it's, it's all fine. But that compounded day by day in, day out. Again, I don't mean to, you know, dramatize it too much, but, you know, repeated acts of small separations leads to a larger gap and a larger disconnect between us and our loved ones. And in the context of our text, it means between us and God. So, with that in mind, let's jump into the new text for today. I'm going to share my screen with you. And, oh, actually, before I do that, any questions or comments on the ideas that we've spoken about thus far, the idea of deception and truth and God and symptom and reality and all that stuff. Susan, yeah. Just really quickly, I um, collect a lot of books by Judith Martin, who's also known as Miss Manners. And, um, you know, you study etiquette and ethics, and you have to really be, like, nuanced um, when it comes to, you know... Honesty. The ethical versus the etiquette questions, you know. So there right. are times when you, the idea that you have to, I think you told us a story about a bride that's kind of homely and you, but you can't, of course, you'd have to say the bride is beautiful. Yes. Day or something like that. That would be etiquette, you know. Yes. Thanks for reminding me that. That's, that's, that's powerful. And I like, I like those terms, right? The ethical, ethical. Ethical etiquette, like honesty versus versus etiquette. I, li- I like I like those those terms. So, yeah, what you're mentioning is actually a dispute in the Talmud. So, the Talmud says, what should you say to the at a wedding to the bride to the groom? So you should say you should praise the bride, kala nova chasuda, beautiful, and uh, whatever you say that the bride is beautiful, and so um, the. the 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 Beit Shammai, the, the there were two big academies at the time, the Academy of Shammai and the Academy of Hillel. So the Academy of Shammai said, no, not every bride should you say that. You should praise the bride based on her quality. So if she's smart, she's smart. If she's beautiful, she's beautiful. If she's comes from a wonderful family, if she's kind-hearted, praise based on the quality of the bride, the specific. And Beit Hillel, the Academy of Hillel says. Every bride is beautiful and praise every bride as beautiful. Now the halacha, we know in the disputes between, Hillel and Sh- between the academies of Shammai and Hillel, the halacha is always like, with rare exception, like Hillel. One of the other famous disputes is about how we light the Hanukkah menorah, right? 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, or 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Shammai says <coughs> we go down, Hillel says we go up, and we go like Hillel. So Hillel says no, right? You don't praise the bride with a specific way, because that would imply if you're not using the beautiful adjective that you don't think the bride is beautiful, and that could be, or would be, an insult to the bride on her wedding day, and an insult also to the groom who certainly thinks his bride is beautiful. So that's how, so exactly, exactly. So we don't avoid, so the point is, even if you don't think, even if we don't think, you or one person doesn't think the bride is beautiful, Chas v'shalom, God forbid, to, to express that even indirectly, right? It's not our place, and it's not right, it's not etiquette, it's not, it does, it's, it's, not, it's not cool, it's not good. You're right, that's, that, and that's where it reflects itself. Thanks for reminding me of that in, in a Talmudic dispute, but also in the halacha of how we're meant to, uh, 
to, to, to praise the bride, if you will, on the wedding day. And this is brought, brought down in Jewish law. Many Jewish songs, by the way, that use these words, Kalanav v'chasudah, those of you that are familiar with classic Jewish wedding tunes are familiar with that, uh, with that phrase. Um, okay, so, yeah, and exactly, so that's the idea of peace and love. So it's not, the way it's, it's broken down in, in, in Jewish philosophical thought, not even Kabbalah, but Jewish philosophical thought is, not that truth is abandoned, but rather... Truth is not the only value that exists, right? Truth is really important, but peace is also really important. And so we live in an imperfect world. We live in a world where sometimes you can't have it all. You can't have 100% truth and 100% peace sometimes coexisting. Because if you said the 100% truth, it would not lead to 100% peace. So then what do you do? Which one gets sacrificed for the other? And obviously, there are, it's not so simple. We can't just abandon the truth anytime we think it's going to make someone uncomfortable or whatever it is. We have to also be, it's, it's very nuanced, but there are definitely times, and it's deciphered in Jewish law and ethics, where you do, at least for the moment, shelve truth to preserve peace. It's very important. Um, but again, that, I think this, the idea that we live in a world where you can't have always, you can't always have the best of all the worlds, you can't have truth and peace coexist all the time, I think that also speaks to the idea of the platform of the world being somewhat, you know, being of deception. Because it means like we live in an imperfect world. Yeah, it's not, it's not 100% transparent and open and, 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 and in a way that's beautiful in that open transparency. Sometimes the only way to get the desired result is through opacity or opaqueness. Like God's intended result of us being autonomous beings or at least self-aware autonomous beings. In other words, like we perceive ourselves as autonomous beings at the very least. That has to happen through deception, through concealment, through tzimtzum. So even with God, you can't have it both ways. Right? I, who am I to tell God what he can't have? But at least the way it plays out, according to Kabbalah, it seems like you can't have 100% clarity and 100% autonomy or perception of autonomy. Because if it's clear that God is source and God is all, then you're not going to have beings that view themselves as, as beings. It's just everything's going to dissolve in the light. So you have to turn out the light to allow other lights to shine. It, you can't have it all. And uh, we just, we recognize the limitations, and that's fine. But what we're really getting to is not to further add fuel to that fire or to add distance. We're meant to close the gap and recognize the truth, even if we're never going to pull back the curtain, you know, the Wizard of Oz. We're never going to fully pull back that curtain and live. That's what God tells Moses, right? You can't see my face and live. If you pull back that curtain all the way, then... I mean, you would still live, but not as you. You wouldn't live. You would live as part of me, which would erase your self-identity. So you, as Moses, right, the son of Amram, a human being, would no longer exist if you saw my face. If you saw truth, you wouldn't be you. You would be part of me which is fine, but I want you because I still have a job for you. 
when you're done, you can come back. But right now, you got to think that you are you in order to be able to accomplish what you need to do. Um, listen, listen. The truth is, this is, uh, you know, this is r- the reason why Kabbalah wasn't always studied by everybody because it does pull back the curtain a little bit. And you get into territory that's a little bit, you know, you get, you're getting close. You and I, get, we get close when we study Kabbalah. We, we get, yeah, Elaine? Um, hi. Okay. Hey. I don't know if you, what you'll think of this, but is maybe the first little fib when God said, "Don't, don't eat of the fruit of the tree," because He had to know in paradise, and you know, Adam and Eve were like a few hours old, and we had to figure they would probably do it. Like if if you had the the kids, you you brought them into this party room that you made for them, and you said. You can do anything you want. It's all for you. Oh, yeah, but that beautiful cake right there with the pink frosting, you can't touch it. You cannot touch it. You know if you leave the room, that's the thing they're going to touch first, right? Yeah, yeah. Good point. Excellent so, point. That's sort of a deception to kind of get us get the whole thing started. Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. You know, I don't know if it's deception. I get It's kind of a setup, which I guess you could say is deception because God is saying, I don't want you to do it. But God's kind of like, I know you're going to do it and I'm setting you up for it. So it's kind of like mis- almost a little bit misrepresenting intention. It's kind of like, I really don't want you to do it, but you kind of have to because that's, that's the arc that this whole thing is going to take. So we, we need you to get there. So there is an element. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. There is, there's definitely an element of that as well. So let's jump into our text and let's see how this plays out in the context of the deception about the deception. When we tell ourselves, oh, we're not even deceiving ourselves as we deceive ourselves. Again, there is the core deception and then there's, oh, but I'm not deceiving myself as we deceive ourselves, which is telling ourselves, yeah. It's like meta deception. We don't even, we won't even tell ourselves that we're being deceptive as we're being deceptive. That which is another form of deception. Page fifty. Page fifty. Um, I believe we're up to here. Let me go back to page forty-eight and just double check. Yeah, I think we did that. Yeah, we talked about indulgence and permissible. Yeah, basically indulgence in self. The more we're self-absorbed and self-contained and self-aware and about self, the less we are sensitive to the other. That's I said before, you know, that, that's, that's the way it is. We don't wake up one morning, you know, totally disconnected or disconnected from a loved one. It starts little by little. We turn away, we turn to ourselves. And it's not malicious, it's not whatever, but it's, it's just turning away. And the more we turn away, the more distance comes and in, in, the, in our context, in, in, sorry, in this Immediate context of our discourse, it means in our relationship with God, turning towards self uh, and not thinking about what God wants or needs from us. And it's more of like, well, what I need for myself today, I need this, I need that, or I want this and I want that. Over time, it leads to a point where we become desensitized to what God wants. And then even if something's big, it's like, well, I don't have time for that. You know, I got my own stuff to worry about. That creates a bit of a gulf. Um, Take a look at what he says, 50. Uh, the middle paragraph over here, which takes it one step further. Let's jump in. I'm going to read this. Let's see if I can make it a little bit larger, make it easier to read. Yeah, here we go. There's another factor involved in the animal souls, or really the 
evil inclination. Same thing. The animal soul's persuasion to violate a clear prohibition, God forbid. So there's another factor involved. It's not just that we're stepping away, but there's another factor here. What is that? And that is the mistaken assumption, right, which, by the way, is a, a, a euphemism for folly, right? Mistaken assumption. That's like the folly that we're talking about. So mistaken assumption that regardless of his conduct, he will not separate himself from God's oneness. That's huge. I'm actually going to highlight that whole little shtickle, that whole piece, right? Can I highlight it? Yeah, there we go. Regardless of his conduct, this is the story we tell ourselves, right? I'll just, instead of he, which is third party, I'm just going to say, I'll just say I, right? Regardless of my conduct, no matter what I do, I'm not actually separating myself from God. And again, God, any relationship, whatever it is. This is the next level of folly or maybe even part of the whole thing the whole time. It's not just I'm turning away and turning to myself and becoming desensitized, but as I do that, I tell myself, this is not harming my relationship with God or whatever, right? This is not harming my relationship. This is not creating any distance. No matter, right? Even though I'm going to do this, that, or the other, that doesn't mean I love God any less. Just because I am focused on X, Y, and Z and not on ABC doesn't mean that I'm in any way less connected with source. That's the next piece of the lies the self-deception. That I could do all of this stuff and it's not harmful, right? It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change how I feel. It doesn't change who I am, right? And he... I'm going to stop sharing for a second because I need, I, I need to set this up. The premise of this is that if a person realized that this action was going to absolutely sever themselves from their source, they would never do it. If a person felt that this was like do or like this was psh, the blow up moment, this would blow up the relationship, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. And he brings a proof. Again, he's speaking about God right, right now, right? Um, I, I know I've been using like human relations. I just feel like that makes it, that's not what it's talking about, but it gives us a, a frame of reference to then apply it back to God on some level, right? So the way he describes this again spiritually is how over the years, and we've seen this throughout Jewish history. I mean, he's speaking specifically about um, Jewish history because he's speaking to you know, this is a discourse, a, chazimist, a Kabbalistic discourse written for his community. So he's writing in a context and he says that over the centuries, we've seen this time and again in our communities, whether, whether whatever nation they were in, that you had Jews who were not so fervently observant or religious or whatever, whatever you know, label you want to use. Not so, you know, into things. But when they were faced with a choice, when they were forced um, by pain of death to convert 
out of Judaism, to renounce their Jewish faith, even individuals who weren't the, you know, the most outwardly excited Jew, said, I will never renounce my faith. That I cannot do. And accepted death rather than even say, I've abandoned my, my, uh, my, my, my heritage, my, my connection. And where does that come from? Where does that come from? That comes from a, a sense that I cannot choose to cut that cord. I will not, I cannot, I will never cut that cord. We see that even today. All, you, all we need to do is look around at, 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 at services, for example, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we see the incredible, I mean, I know pandemic is different, right? But, you know, as of a year and a half ago or whatever, right? So the, 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 the incredible outpouring, right, that in services that happens on the high holidays, and it's because no matter what a person is or isn't doing, the connection is there. And for person, and a person will not say, I'm, I'm cutting the connection. So here's his point. When we think, when we see the scissors, or the, not a scissors, the big scissors. What are those called? Whatever. The big scissors, that gets us, that gets us like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But what about the little stuff? What about the little stuff? The day-by-day stuff where we turn away, right? Why do we allow ourselves to do that, but we would never allow, we would never renounce our connection. We would never, like, say, I'm out. We wouldn't do that. But why do we do the little stuff? It's because of a further deception. That is, that we tell ourselves that this little, that this thing is little, we tell ourselves that this is, this turning away is not big, it's little. That itself is part of the great deception that gets us into a negative pattern. Does that make sense what I just said? Yes? Okay. Let's jump inside. You'll see it in the text. Um, hopefully it makes sense what I'm saying. Let's jump in. Okay. Um, here we go. It is an innate characteristic of the souls of Israel that they cannot tolerate being separate from God because you are our Father. For this reason, I don't like this translation. I'm, I cannot read this, these words. I cannot read these words because its translation is way too harsh. For this reason, I have to figure out how I'm going to modify it without looking at the Hebrew right now. For this reason, even those who appear to not always be so excited about their Judaism, right? I'm modifying it. Even that person is prepared to offer his life for the sanctification of God's name, as I mentioned before, throughout history. You have people, even as recently, look, I'm trying to think of the last time in history when Jews were, were forced on that level, and I think back to stories that came out of the Holocaust, where you had Jews of all kinds and all backgrounds, 
all families and all levels of, of, of identification in concentration camps because they were Jewish. You know, we talk about Jewish labels and Hitler Yamashimai did not differentiate, right? And the Rebbe said many times, Hitler went after every Jew with hate, no matter who, no matter what. Our job post-Holocaust is to go after every Jew in love and, and, and love everyone without looking at labels, without looking at, you know, that, uh, that sort of thing. But how many stories came out from the Holocaust that we know of, of, of Jews who weren't, you know, the most, again, who, who's anybody to judge? But on the outside, didn't profess or didn't look like the most religious or whatever it is or synagogue-going affiliated Jews. But when told to, I don't even want to tell the stories, but like desecrate, that's, I'll leave it at that, a Torah scroll or... Uh, in, in another way to sort of turn one's back on, on, on the essence of Judaism, said, I will not do that. And we're faced, sorry, we're prepared to face death and, and, and we're executed, we're murdered for their steadfast refusal to abandon their core identity. And so what it comes down to is this. What it comes down to is that there are these big atomic moments that we feel are big. There are moments, sorry, there are moments that we feel are really big. Do or die. It's like big, um, what's the word I'm looking for? These are statement moments. Moments of like you're making a statement. And that moment, we rise to the occasion. But what about the other moments? That's his point. Why isn't every moment a statement moment? Why is this little thing little? Who says that it's little? Maybe it's also big. What, this, what determines whether something is big or little? I want to give you a completely different analogy. And I'm sorry if this veers our attention off of the core point, but I think it's relevant. You know, and, and it's gonna, I'm, I'm dating myself. Not in the, oh, hey, do you come here often? Oh, so what? No. But I mean, I'm dating myself by using a, <laughs> see, some of you appreciate the crazy, the wackiness of that statement. But look, thank you. Thank you for that. So, Michael Jordan, when I was growing up, the greatest basketball player of my generation or my lifetime, at least then, I, listen, today, um, LeBron, I, I don't know, I'm not wading into this, here's the deal. What made Michael Jordan great, according to many analysts, and even for every, just to the casual observer as well, is that when you watched him play, you noticed that every trip up and down the court, he viewed as do or die. You ever notice at the end of a basketball game, I don't know if anybody watches basketball here or watched or at any point follow basketball, at the end of a basketball game, time goes really slow, right? There's timeouts every like half a second. 
and like every play is super meaningful and super pressure filled and like the stakes are upped and every basket, every play is scripted and it's so precise, it's so like relevant because this is gonna determine the outcome. And then you think to yourself, where were you? I think basketball is what, 42, 48 minutes? What happened the first 40 minutes? Because those points matter the same as these points, right? It's simple math, right? A point is still a point, two points is still two points, right? The, the points matter the same throughout. And what made Michael Jordan great is that he treated every trip up the court as if it were the end of the game, last shot, must make it do or die. And so what determines whether something is a big moment and we take it seriously and we make sure not to make a mistake, we focus really hard, or whether, yeah, no big deal, it's a casual moment, one of many that we could always recover from, what makes that determination? You guessed it, our own minds. It's a decision that we make. It's a story we tell ourselves. Either we tell ourselves, this is really important, I got to get it right, or we tell ourselves, no big deal, doesn't matter what I do, even if I mess up, I can always, not even if I mess up, even if I intentionally go a different direction, I can make it up later, it's fine, no big deal. So throughout history, what he's saying here, and we're going to get back inside in a second, is that Jews knew that at certain moments, there was no way to come back from that, which is when they chose to remain faithful. Because there's no way to come back from, that's too big of a declaration to then say, didn't mean it, whoops, you know, coming back from that, no big deal. That was a big deal. But his point is, what about all the other times? Not for that person, but for you and I. All the times that we essentially turn our back and say, God, see you later, right? Why do we do that? How do we let ourselves do that? It's because we tell ourselves, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's a recoverable offense, right? We'll get back. It's just the temporary, whatever it is, but we'll be back. In other words, we tell ourselves that it's still the beginning of the game and we still have another 30 minutes, 24 minutes, 20 minutes, 20 seconds to come back. That's what we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves there's still more time and this is not the end. But the truly greats, I know I'm moving back in different worlds here. The Michael Jordans, they look at every basket every time they touch the ball this is the game the game is not only on the line when the clock reads 0.2 seconds the game is on the line when the clock first starts ticking the game is already on the line that's what makes the greats great and so the message of our paragraph is not just about the problem, it's about the solution. The solution to the folly is recognizing that every action constitutes our identity. Who is it that we're choosing to be in this moment? It's a choice. How do I see the moment and who do I want to be in the moment? Am I okay 
separating in the moment? Right? Does that mean that I'm telling myself that this moment doesn't matter? That the separation doesn't matter? Or that the separation is not actually a separation? There's some narrative that I tell myself to let myself get away with that. Or not get away. Do that. This book is called Overcoming Folly. And it's so real. It's so raw. It's so brutally honest in a world of deception. That's my trailer voice, right? In a world of falsehood. This text is saying, let's look at how we are thinking and operating, right? What do we imagine? How do we let ourselves get into trouble in the first place? How do we let ourselves make choices that later on we facepalm? How do we do it? Well, last week we said, slowly but surely we become desensitized. And today we're saying, in those moments... When we were becoming a little bit disconnected, we told ourselves, nah, that's not a disconnection. I'll let you know when I see one, right? I'll I'll be able to know disconnection when I see it. Meanwhile, we let ourselves slip slowly, slowly, slowly. It's like the basketball team that has the talent, but everyone's playing casually. We can make it up. We're down by two, no problem. We're down by 10. No problem. Down by 14. No problem. We can make it up. But by the time, I don't know why, I don't need to go a doomsday scenario where we can't make it up. But slowly, slowly let ourselves kind of slip behind. If we looked at every moment as a critical moment, we would be less likely to allow that to happen. That's, again, part of the folly that gets us in trouble. Back inside, I'm going to share. Um... Take a look at this. And again, this is not a theory. This is born of, I cannot tell you how many stories have been published and told, whether it's in recent times or ancient times, whether it's in Spain or Europe or or Germany. Even at the cost, right here, middle of the page, even at the cost of his life. Again, we're speaking about a theoretical person. He will not commit the sin of idolatry or betrayal of the faith. For this means cutting himself off from the oneness and unity of God. Now, if he would only realize that his evil act in this moment does cut him off from godliness, he would be utterly incapable of such a deed. In other words, the difference is not what you're doing, it's how you perceive it. If you perceived, if I, forget you, if I perceived that this action was betrayal and cutting myself off, I wouldn't do it. So what's the key? The key is tell myself this is a big deal. We we make mistakes because we tell, partially, there are many layers to this, but partially because we tell ourselves it's not a big deal. It's no big deal. When it's a big deal, I'll worry about it. But this is not a big deal. So he says, realize this is a big deal. However, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, persuades him that regardless, he will not be separated from God and that he's no different from any other Jew loyal to his God. The Yetzirah reassures him that it will be fine as well. All will be good. Nothing's wrong. Everything is great. Everything is wonderful. As the verse 
stay as in the verse in Deuteronomy, he will bless himself in his heart. You know the phrase, uh, bless your heart? I don't know if that's what it means, but or exactly the same thing. But a person will basically bless himself in his heart means a person will feel content and justify his action, saying, I shall have peace, for by what my heart sees fit, I will go. In other words, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm okay with that. I shall have peace, because I'm okay. Nothing wrong. Nothing to see here. Nothing, no damage being caused which he translates here, even if he follows the dictates of his heart, doing whatever he wants, still he shall have peace. The result is, in truth, that he will be caught in so many pitfalls. So, we're trying to trace the origins of error, right? How is it that a person can fall into making mistakes that are self-destructive? And we've given multiple layers I'm just going to go from the beginning, just very short, so we have the full arc of our discussion up until now, because we're about to start a new, not a new discourse, but a new chapter within Discourse 2. We're going to jump into that in a moment. But let's just trace, I think we have three follies so far. Maybe four, but I think three that I can think of right now. Folly number one is, it looks good. This is good. I want to do this. This is good. The antidote to that folly, the meditation antidote is, this is good. There's so much better good than this good. This is good? This is good if you don't have a mind, if you don't have a divine soul, if you don't have a human soul. This is, I mean, it's okay, but this is not good. Why are you running after this thing that's not really good? There's so many better things that you and I can run after than this, you know, lowly, physical, mundane, biological pursuit. That's one thing. The second thing is, the second folly is, where the Sahara says, uh, the evil inclination says, oh, turn to your own stuff and don't worry about God. Turn to your own stuff, your own indulgences, and slowly but surely it leads us to be, find ourselves desensitized to, to source. And the third point, which is really maybe explaining the second point, the second folly, the third folly is where we tell ourselves, this thing that I'm about to do is not going to change anything. It's not going to harm, it's not going to change the dynamics of this relationship, Everything's the same. I'm just going to do this. No big deal. That may not be true. <laughs> it may or may not be true. It may be a big deal. And maybe we don't see how it's a big deal, which is why we can tell ourselves that. You know, certain times we can't lie to ourselves anymore. Certain things are so blatant and obvious, we can't actually say it's not a big deal because it's clearly a big deal. So the point here is that the times that we tell ourselves it's not a big deal, we should have the foresight and the wisdom and the meditational ability is to tell ourselves, no, wait, this is a big deal. Let me pull back on this, knowing that, number one, it could lead to something through repeated behavior, but also, number two, even in this moment, this constitute, constitutes a turning of the back, which is how I want to bring it back full circle to how we started. And I want to bring it now to the idea of truth, deception, life, and death. Please stay with me now. There is truth. And there is deception, and we defined it on a larger level. Truth is source. Deception is, I don't see source, right? Truth would mean, I recognize source. I see where this is. I know that I am nothing but divine projection. I know that God is everything, is all. That's truth. Now, I'm not saying that we would survive in this way, knowing or seeing that truth, but Knowing it, at least on some level, is, is healthy and what we're meant to do. Um, lie is, 
I don't know about the source, I exist, whatever, don't bother me, etc. This is the same, truth and deception is the same as life and death. Let me explain. God is the source of life, not only source, God is the only life. God is life, life is God. There's no other source of life outside of God. It's not like, well, there's God, and then life is coming from some other sort of place. There's no other reality of life outside of God. So at the, the more we connect with truth, is the, the more we're plugging into to life itself. The more we turn away from truth, right? the more deception we are filled with, the more lack of life we are filled with. It constitutes a reality that our sages say is essentially death. Because if we believe that we are autonomous beings that essentially create ourselves, you ever hear the expression, a self-made man, right? Kind of think about what that means, right? It typically means like in business or success or whatever it is, but I mean, the words speak for themselves, self-made. That kind of means self-made, right? So when we believe that we are self-made, not only is it deception, not only is it not true, but it constitutes a separation from the source of life in a conscious way. Now, it doesn't mean that we're no longer alive, but it means that we are unplugging consciously from our source of life. So our objective, our mission is to consciously plug into that source and not to, right, right as Pharaoh said, I am my own creator, I created the Nile, it's mine, etc. Right? Pharaoh was the ultimate denier of, of this truth. And, and when we do that, or when a person does that, we disconnect from truth and from life itself. So this is the danger of deception. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't exist anymore. We can exist. We can exist in a state of falsehood, but it means that our, tr our, our life, the true meaning of life is compromised. This will take us to chapter two, because in chapter two, he talks about the, the very notions of life and death and how life is defined by connection with source and death is turning away from that source. So let's jump in. Let's jump into chapter 2 of Discourse 2, which can be found on page 52. Lots of twos here. Um, take a look. All of this is clearly part of the folly of the Yetzer, the evil inclination, which turns man aside and conceals the truth. May God protect us from this. Conceals the truth of that everything is God and that this moment is, is me turning away from that truth and that's a problem and it's, it's damaging, right? All of that is part of the fall of the Yetzer, which conceals the truth, again, on multiple levels. It conceals the truth and it conceals that concealing the truth is a problem. Again, there's two issues. One is what is the truth? And the second is that abandoning truth is problematic. It also says no big deal for that. When the Ye what the Yetzer persuasively describes as good and beneficial right, is in reality nothing less than death and evil, and that's what I was sharing with you just a moment ago. If it is prohibited by Torah, as it is written in Deuteronomy, look, I have placed before you today life and good, death and evil. 
which means, which means that what is good connected, what is good and connected is really life. And what is evil and disconnected is in reality death. And through this, again, these are strong terms. In the translation, it's a little bit strong. He destroys his soul, hurling it, not destroys literally, but compromises his soul, hurling it down to the lowly Sha'ol, the abode of the Klipot and Sitra Achra. This refers to the shell and other side. In other words, those forces that serve to conceal God as part of the fabric of the universe. But a person can choose to <coughs> peel back the layers of klipa. Okay, let me, let me explain this. Klipa are shells. What is a shell? Think about a shell or a peel on a fruit. It covers the fruit inside. Our job in life, world is created with a shell. As I, the whole foundation of today's class is deception and the embedded deception of reality where God puts a layer of obfuscation, of, of opacity on the truth so that we don't, not, um, intuit, we don't immediately sense God, we sense self. Fine. But the goal is to peel back some layers and get to the core, even if we don't fully see it, but to get closer. But when we choose the opposite, when we choose to indulge in self or to do something against what God wants, that is choosing the shell over the fruit. Right? So that's putting ourselves into that space of the klipot and sitrachra, putting our, our, ourselves into that space of distraction and deception, um, of the three utterly impure klipot, and even lower. Tanya explains this at length. The klipot and sitra, and, and I'm, I'm going to finish this paragraph, and then pause, and then share with you an insight, and, and then hopefully wrap it all together. The klipot and sitrachra, again, klipot means shells, and sitrachra literally means, it's, it's Aramaic in Kabbalah used for Sitra means side, and achra means other. Sitra achra means the other side. It's a euphemism for anything other than God or godliness. So there's God, and then there's the other side. What's the other side? Anything else. Anything else other than God and pure, transparent reality, truth, and life is called sitra achra. Now, he says, the klipot and sitra achra, these forces, these realities, also receive their nurture and existence from the word of God and the breath of his mouth. In other words, they also exist. They're alive and well. And where do they come from? Also God. It's not like God and otherness. Otherness also comes from God, right? God, otherness is also stemming from God. However, listen to this. However, the existence of Klipot and Sitra Achra is through concealment of his presence, through descent. This should be obvious by now because I've set it up throughout the class. Deception exists due to concealment. Deception essentially exists through deception. Right? Klipot, the shell exists by hiding the fruit. The other side exists by concealing godliness. So all, it, yes, these elements are also God, which is also how I started today's class. Everything is God, including the tzimtzum, right? God is the light and the concealment. God is in the concealment. But the whole point of concealment is that you and I don't realize that. So the Klippot and Sitra are also existing from God, 
but it's through concealment. For this reason, they are called other gods, right? Foreign deities are called Elohim Acherim, other gods. Since an other, Acherim, could also mean back. It means other, but it also means as opposed to front, it can mean back. That's going to be very important in this wordplay that we're about to do. Since they're nurture and life, right? The, the life force of the concealment derives not from the state of God's face, which is the open, revealed part, but from the hinder part of God, of holiness. Now, this is not meant to be taken literally, that God has a face and a back, but metaphorically, God's face would, would, would symbolize open concealment. God's back, sorry, 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 open revelation, not concealment. God's face would represent open, honest, not honest, open, revealed reality, truth, divine. And, and the back of God, the back of God, so to speak, would represent concealment, etc. Let me explain that terminology. When you look at someone's face, you can oftentimes, not always, often poker face notwithstanding, you can oftentimes see what they're thinking, how they're feeling, who they are, what you can identify a person by their face. You look at someone's back, what do you know? I mean, there's some body language that you can pick up by posture and whatever, but the back is much less of a window into the soul than the, than the front. Is that, I mean, correct? Does that make sense? Yes? The front is more of an open window than the back? Fine. So what he's saying here is that that which is holy means that which is revealed, divine revelation, and that is the state of face. And that which conceals God is the back of God, so to speak, the hinder part of holiness. Hinder part describes how one, back inside, how one gives something to an enemy, unwillingly, casting it over his shoulder, as it were, turning away from him because he despises him so, which reveals another element <coughs> to the idea of the back. When you love someone and you love something, you're engaged face-to-face. -face. When, uh, when you're annoyed, it's like, take it. It's like, uh, get out of here, right? So it's like, it's like behind your back. It's, you're, it's, not, it's, not so loving. it's not so loving and connected. And so the message here is that God does conceal his presence, but it's done in a way that's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's done in a reluctant way. So God would love to reveal himself to us, would love for us to find him and to have that face-to-face -face connection with him and to do the things that foster and build and nurture that face-to-face -face relationship. God creates concealment because he has to. Okay, I'm, not telling, I'm not telling God what he has to do, but according to Kabbalah, if God wants this, then there has to be concealment. So it's like begrudging. It's a it begrudgingly um, due to reality, God has to feed concealment and feed the other side and feed klipa, feed the shell. Yeah. Actually, no, no, no. Not, wait, wait till I'm done with the class and I'll, I'll talk to you about that. So it's reluctant. It's over the shoulder. It's behind the back. It's, it's not loving and it's not fully connected. And so I want to stop here and kind of tie everything together. <clears throat> I know we're in new territory. We just broke ground in a new chapter, and it's going to lead to a new discussion. But I do want to bring everything together. Today was about truth, lies, and stories. The truth is God. The lie is what God? That's the deception. From that deception, all other deceptions are built. From the core deception of, I don't see God here. Where's God? I exist. I'm not sure about God. 
from that original core, everything is manifest. Because in truth, that is the foundation of ego. And from ego, that's where all the problems begin. And all the deceptions emerge. And so there's two levels to this. Number one, believing that there's a disconnection. Believing that there's a foundation of disconnection. And then further magnifying that by doing things to turn away and, ma- and, and magnify the gulf and then tell ourselves that we're not actually doing that, right? That's the double or maybe even triple layer of deception. So the first layer of deception is that there's any space. Then the next layer is I'm adding to the space. And then the next layer is telling ourselves I'm not adding to the space even as we add to the space. And again, we're not actually adding to the space because there is no space, but we're adding to the space in our heads, or at least in our feelings. We feel after time that, oh, I don't feel so connected. How do we turn around one day and say, you know, I don't feel connected? Where does that come from? According to our text, it comes from repeated turning away from and not thinking about source, which is natural. We don't naturally, intuitively always think about source, but we're meant to overcome that, that and, and, and think about source. But sometimes we don't, and that magnifies it, and then we tell ourselves nothing wrong is happening, and that further magnifies the separation. And what we're going into in chapter 2 is basically the idea that not only is it about truth and deception, but it's really about life and death. Because plugging into truth is plugging into life. And if we wish to live lives that are truly alive, and not just existences, but lives that are lived with vitality and vibrancy, we have to plug into truth. I really wanted to talk about this today. I'm going to do it next week. And I'm going to mention, I'm going to drop it now, not elaborate on it, and pick it up next week. The greatest lie that our society has told us is that we can live lives without a higher connection. That we can live happy lives and fulfilled lives without a higher connection. According to what you and I just read in chapter 2 of Discourse 2 of Overcoming Folly, you, we, you and I know that to be patently false. We cannot live lives without plugging into a higher truth. Because the definition of life is plugging into a higher truth, right? The definition of life is plugging into that truth. So a society that tells us, cut out God, cut out religion, cut out spirituality. Life is all about the money and the fame and the power. That's it. A society that does that should not be surprised when the products of that society don't know why they should bother waking up that day. Because what's the point? What's the point? Why am I waking up today to connect once again with something that is not real? is not true, is not life. Why should I spend another day 
meandering in death, what's the point? And the children see the futility, even if they're the lights, even if they're mesmerized by the lights, at some point, at some point, the realization kicks in, what's the point? What is the point? If a human being does not have a higher purpose to drive them, the, the weight of existence can become unbearable and we are seeing the product of that. This is a major discussion and I don't mean to oversimplify these conversations. It's a very important conversation to have. We're going to have it next week at Kabbalah and Coffee. Please stay tuned for that. I mean, stay tuned. You don't have to stay on this. You can <laughs> don't, you don't literally stay tuned, but come back and join me next week for a very important discussion about the Kabbalah of life. Again, we have to be very careful. It seems like not a big deal. We just cut out stuff that's a matter of personal, you know, whatever. People can believe, they don't have to believe, whatever. We just cut that stuff out. But what happened? But what happened? What happens? Every action has a reaction. Every action has a reaction. I feel like I dropped a little bit too of a heavy thing at the end and, and, and I, don't, I hate to cut and run on this note, but we will pick this up next week on a positive note because really this is all about positivity. It's not about negativity. The positive, positive side is that you and I have at every moment of our lives a choice to live. And how do we live? By plugging into something higher, higher consciousness at that moment. And it's not only when we're doing spiritual activities, as we've discussed over the last several weeks, everything that we do can be connected with a higher purpose. Yes, waking up in the morning and brushing our teeth and getting dressed and eating breakfast, not just as a means to an end, but these activities themselves, when filled with a higher purpose, a higher consciousness, they become alive and then we can live. So, like the Torah tells us in Deuteronomy, choose life. Because what's the alternative, right? Let's choose to live. Let's choose to infuse our existence with actual life and meaning. I want to wish Mariana and Alex a Mazal Tov. Mazal Tov on the engagement of your oldest son, Ian Isaac, right? Mazal Tov, Mazal Tov. Um, Engagement party was this morning, right? It will be. It oh, it will, will be. be. In one hour more. Oh, it's it going to be. be. Okay. Yeah, it will be. Yeah, it's going to be. But for me, this class is the most beautiful thing that happened. It's 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 a it's a present. Thank you very my, much. My my pleasure. To you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. I don't mind today if the class even plays second fiddle. But look, Mazel tov, I want to wish you a personal, personal Mazel tov from Leah and myself and the whole Mishpacha. We, 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 we feel so connected and, uh, and just, so, just so filled with joy and simcha. And we remember Ian as, I think he was always tall, but as, as, a, as, a, young, as a young man and just, just overflowing with joy. So from us to you, 
just all the love and all of the, all of the, the mazel tov in the world, just so happy. Um, and to everybody, it is Thank great you. to see, of course, of course, and, and to everybody, wishing you all good health and happiness, and may all your prop bets today pay off. I'm kidding, I'm not advocating gambling. I'm just saying, if you happen to wager on how long the national anthem would go for, may all your prayers come true. And the main thing is, the main thing is, without, without uh, you know, the main thing is that we should choose to live. Yes, we can enjoy life, and, and, and when I say enjoy life, we can enjoy the pleasures that are out there, but let's remember to keep a higher focus, because that's what life is. Otherwise, the burden of existence is absolutely crushing. Whereas the beauty of life is exhilarating and uplifting. Let's choose life. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you all very soon. Stay tuned. By the way, check your email for a really important announcement coming up this week about a very important event, which I am super excited to share with you. And I cannot not share, so I'm sharing it now. Leaking the information. Dr. David Lazan's mom is a Holocaust survivor and an author and a tremendous human being, someone who's spoken to, I believe, can we say over a million people and children over the years. And from my understanding, David, when you were growing up, she didn't share with the family her story of survival. She survived multiple um, uh, concentration camps. Her story is incredible. Think of the story of Anne Frank, if Anne Frank would have survived a similar, somewhat of a similar journey or a similar path. She survived. She built a beautiful family. David is literally here with us as her son. And we are, I, we, I, we are just so humbled and awed and, and, and just grateful that next month, the date is Sunday, March 14th at 7 p.m., David's mom is going to share her story with us, with our community, live, March 14th, 7 p.m. Okay, live on Zoom, on Zoom, but live and as close as we can get right now. And uh, please save the date, March 14th, 7 p.m., an evening you will never forget. So, just had to mention that, the, uh, the information about that and, and all, all, everything you need to know about that event will come out, please God, in the next few days. We're just getting it, you know, getting, our, getting all the information up on the website and everything, so stay tuned, but I needed to mention that. As well, there are other things as well, but that's, that's a major, major upcoming, uh, just incredible opportunity to, to hear firsthand witness from an incredible human being. All right. That's it for now. I want to wish you all Shavuot Tov, a wonderful week filled with blessings, joy, and of course, health and life. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Amen, amen. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Beautiful pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Mazal Tov. Take care, everybody.